Humanitarian. This week's episode on Humanitarian is a special treat. It's a conversation between Meg Sattler from Ground Two Solutions and Paula Hilbaisan from NRC's Innovation Department. They have a conversation about system change, innovation, about giraffes and elephants, about humanitarian ancestors, and not least how sci-fi can help us better understand our future. It's a fantastic conversation, it's fun, it's a fresh perspective, and I know you will enjoy it. All right, well, should we start? I am, I've never been more ready in my life. Great. <laughs> All right, well, um, thank you, Paula, for appearing on True Humanitarian. It is my pleasure, Meg. Um, it's really great to have the opportunity to talk to you because we have been trying to talk for a while and uh, between kids and work and pets and life, our schedules haven't aligned. So this is a great privilege today. Um, but I wanted to talk to you about humanitarian reform, which is something that we're both obviously quite passionate about. Um, I wanted to step out, I guess, of the normal topics of humanitarian reform, like the grand bargain and the commitments and the work streams and all the blah, 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 and speak a bit more broadly, because you are an innovator, both in life and on your CV as Global Manager of Innovation and Digital at NRC, if I have that right? Yes, perfectly um, correct. <laughs> great. So I guess to kick us off, just kind of a broad question, which is sort of a big one, but do you think that the humanitarian sector is actually capable of innovation? Mm. <clears throat> that, that, is a, that is a very good question to start with. And I guess there's like perhaps two ways of answering this question. Because when you say, um, I'm, a, I'm an innovator, I would say, well, so are you, right? So anyone, anyone working in this sector that has at least um, worked um, in, a, in a real sort of humanitarian crisis is an innovator because mm -hmm. at, the, at the smallest unit of business we have, so imagine an area of it, um, innovation happens there all the time in every area of our work. We, we are innovating every day because we come up with new ways of generating value for people. Um, I, I think the problem is not at that level. The problem is that very rarely those very small sort of golden nuggets of change that we see at the area level grow to the scale to truly transform the sector. So mm -hmm. I could also be answering your question in this way and say, actually, if we're looking at it from a more macro perspective, the humanitarian sector as a whole capable of reinventing itself through innovation, um, I would probably have to say no, because mm -hmm. the forces that regulate us as a sector are more political than economical in that sense. So for a variety of reasons, they still seem to have a use for us in our current shape. So unless that changes anytime soon, I don't necessarily see innovation as that thing that is going to like bring about the change that we owe to the people that we're trying to serve. And that's, I guess that touches on an interesting leadership point, right? Because at the moment, it's a very interesting time for the sector. Um, Mark Lowcock, our emergency relief coordinator is obviously stepping back. There are a few question marks and maybe dare I say some exciting question marks about the future of our leadership with the gap that will be left there. Um, and, you know, no disrespect to Lowcock and his series of white male predecessors, but I have felt a bit of an energy shift recently where I think where there used to be an acceptance of a certain type of leadership as the norm, it now sort of feels a bit like 
you know, there is a, a collective disappointment, I would almost say, whenever that is actively perpetuated, but there is kind of a palpable excitement when someone different takes up a leadership role. Um, and I guess you've been involved in a lot of discussions around humanitarian futures, I guess. And so, you know, given these systemic barriers that you've touched on, what do you think, you know, what is the humanitarian future and more so, I guess, who will be in it or who should be in it or who, who do you think should be building a humanitarian future that, that looks a bit different and maybe addresses some of these challenges that you've highlighted? So women, obviously, to start with, um, so great that two women like you and I can be having this conversation in this podcast in particular. Mm -hmm. um, I don't necessarily see a lot of spaces that allow two young women to be having conversations like this that matter. Um, but to be honest, I don't know if it's like the exhaustion from COVID that I have or our fascination with like short term thinking in the sector or both, but I realized that in this past year, the question of the future has like exploded in the humanitarian sector and at the same time it's lost some of this like luster for me. I think it, it clearly has something to do with who is producing intelligence about the future in the sector. And um, the actors and the conversation is clearly north to north. Um, and that is not very interesting or actually very useful or meaningful for change. And, mm. and I think also in the last year, I've seen the use of foresight being like co-opted to tell a particular version of the future that suits certain political agendas. So yes, more inclusive voices in the conversation would certainly change the tone. Um, but I'm not entirely sure of bringing about any meaningful change if the same people, mostly the white men that we always talk about, continue to hold the reins of what gets discussed as the future. Mm. So it's about setting the agenda of like what's in the guardrails of what can actually be discussed that I think that matters. And at that level, I don't see a lot of inclusivity. I see a lot of inclusivity at the bottom of like people talking about it. I don't see a lot of inclusivity around people who decide what gets to be built as part mm. of those conversations. And do you think there's... A solution to that? I know that that's a, another big question, but do you see any solutions or ways out of that from the work that you're doing or from the people you're working with? Or I guess, is there anything that gives you hope in that regard? Yeah, loads. So diversity in leadership obviously would be like my first one. So can, can you imagine how different um, the, the sector would be if we would have people at the board level that came from, from different diverse backgrounds, but but also that understood what TikTok is. Like, can you imagine that humanitarian sector if board members were able to understand things at that level? But I think from like the work that I'm doing, um, I've started to, to explore whether the use of like humanitarian science fiction would be the key to produce like that change that we need. Because, because futures and foresight is very scientific, right? It's very academic. But if you take it to a different level and you turn it into art, right, which is science fiction, well, then you can be independent because it's not a report, it's art. So it operates under different rules. So could it be that if we produce our version of the future that is plural, driven by, by people, not by agencies, and then we plant those versions of the future at an unconscious level so that they can never be unseen, um, could, could that change the way mm -hmm. that kind of people lead the humanitarian sector 
Um, so yeah, that fills me with, with hope. There's always things to do as long as you're willing to step out of the boundary. Yeah, and so I guess that's it's interesting and relevant because I suppose 2020 felt a bit like we were living in science fiction anyway. Um, I, but it's an interesting point because I think um, another thing I wanted to ask you about was, you know, I, I agree that the humanitarian sector has kind of not stagnated, but it just feels like, you know, it's such a big thing. And when you're looking at something like the humanitarian sector from a, a systems changing standpoint, it's almost like it's it's too big and it's too complicated and the structures around it are, are too rigid and it definitely while change obviously needs to come from within, I think something that we're not good often as a humanitarian community at is kind of looking for ideas from the outside. And I really like this idea of looking to, you know, as you say, art or fields that are a lot more creative. Um, do you have any other ideas for where we should be looking for inspiration outside of the, um, the humanitarian sector as we know it today? Well, I guess, um... One, one thing that has always saved us, and, and saving is like such a broad term, but something that has allowed us to continue to survive as a sector is to see what's working elsewhere, right? And then we bring it in and we copy it. But what I'm hoping we could do is to not only see what's working, but what other people think are going to, is going to be working in the future, right? So um, we, we are, for example, right now, obsessed with uh, user-centered design. But in reality, the rest of the world has already moved and we're looking at things like donut economics when, where the, like the center of, of design is not the individual, but it's the community. So I guess what I'm trying to say is look at the fringe. So yes, look at the things that, that are working, that is great, but, but those things have already reached the mainstream. Um, look at the fringe and see what are the things that are, are currently being explored in other areas and come, come and see if these things can also bring about change um, for the sector as a whole. There's a bunch of things happening around um, design coming from the Black Lives Matter movement that I think are really interesting. There are lots of other things coming around um, the concept of, for example, innovation and masculinity and femininity and how like a more feminine approach to innovation, regardless of who does it, right, uh, could benefit from embracing um, empathy, tolerance, long-term vision, sustainability, intuition. So uh, it's not a way of, of saying, go out, look at the private sector, adopt everything, bring it in. What I'm trying to say is go out, look at the fringe of human activity, see what's what's interesting and, and bring it and bring it in because I think um, that's where we fall short. We are we are very rarely exploring outside of our boundaries, and I think um, we need we need to do that more. It's such an interesting point because it's it's so true that if you look at history and even at movements that are kind of taking place right now, they happen because of, yeah, thinking on the fringe or thinking that is sometimes considered to be a little bit weird or from a place that maybe you wouldn't expect it. Um, and, I, you know, I do find it quite surprising that given, 
you know, even just some of the examples that you've mentioned on this very short conversation so far, but also just so much that's happening this year in the world, um, you know, where we're seeing things like a young black poet being the best part about an inauguration ceremony or so many new ideas that are kind of starting to suddenly break into the mainstream. And yet within the humanitarian sector, um, I find it interesting that there still seems to be this stranglehold on thought leadership by a certain demographic. So we've touched a bit on leadership more broadly, but you know, I don't know whether you found this, but in the humanitarian Twitter sphere, um, I'm sometimes surprised by the fact that there is still this idea that if there's a new article from, you know, Jeremy Conondyke or Hugo Slim and, you know, their points are very interesting and I, I don't mean any disrespect to them at all, but I'm surprised that they still tend to kind of dominate the conversation. And the reason I think that that's a bit dangerous where, you know, some people may argue that whoever presents an idea, whether or not it's one that is being discussed in a lot of fringe places is good because it gets a platform. I sort of worry that we're never going to break the mold of this certain subset of people or, you know, people who fit a specific demographic being associated with this authority on humanitarian thoughts. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, with, with this conversation on diversity and innovation, if you see anything sort of being able to break the mould on that, or what people could more actively consider in their own sort of discussions or programming or where they look to for inspiration to be able to break that cycle, because I think otherwise, it just seems like it's going to perpetuate and it makes me feel like our sector is really lagging almost behind the rest of the world. Yeah, no, that is such an interesting point. And I was um, talking to a colleague the other day, and I was just saying that it's so it's so depressing at times how non-inspiring um, some leadership figures in the sector can be. It's very rare to like find someone that you are like, oh my god, this is so inspiring. When I grow up, I want to be like them. Um, so. I guess it, it, it comes from the fact that, as I was saying before, like we cannot forget that we are political in nature. The, the, the powers that like resources are political. So it's no wonder that those political forces that have not necessarily been truly transformed by, by what's happening in the world, they still hold power right in, in the shape. And they're actually trying to perpetuate that because that's the source of their power. Um, it's not, it's not um, surprising to me that then the voices that we hear are voices that are not necessarily challenging those power structures at all. Um, so any advice? Well, first of all, see it. Because like once you see it, it's really hard to unsee it, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then the second one would be um, go and talk to real people. And it's not to say that the people you mentioned are not real, um, but if they're in Geneva, they are not real people. And this is coming from someone who is in Geneva. So um, the most interesting part of my work is to talk to the people in Iran who are trying to figure out how to communicate better with people, or the woman in Afghanistan who's trying to figure out how to use technology better to engage women, 
or the person in Bangladesh who's trying to come up with a way of protecting um, property, land and property rights um, for refugees. Like go, go and talk to those people, amplify those voices and stop amplifying the voices of the people that are comfortably sitting in their home office um, sending out guidance and reports. Um, that would be like my desperate cry for transformation if I had one. Yeah, it's a great one. Um, and I think it's it's so interesting that as much as, I mean, it's, it's so frustrating now that there is so much rhetoric around doing that. Um, you know, I mean, even at Ground Truth, we try and do that in some small way, but I feel like there is just so much talk about that at the Geneva level that it almost makes it worse because it's almost just like, there's so much window dressing around, you know, actually giving people moving aside, I guess, to create the space for someone else to be heard in our sector, that it sort of makes it feel like it's going to be a long way off, even though it really shouldn't be given the type of work that we're doing. One question that I have, I guess, linked to everything that we've said so far is, is COVID and its role as a disruptor. I suppose a lot of innovation has come about because there has been some sort of major disruption and people have had to cope. There's already been quite a lot of discussion in humanitarian circles about, you know, is this going to finally force us to stop um, the endless rhetoric around localization and actually just have to do it because the reality is that a lot of international people from Geneva can't fly around the world so easily anymore. Um, do you think that COVID will help or hinder our ability as a sector to innovate and reform and, and move forward and break some of these trends? I don't know, I because I've been thinking, um, if, I, if I could be in a room full of donors and they were asking me, like, what can we do to improve innovation? What would I say? And I think what I would say is, like, stop um, fueling our obsession with product innovation. Like... I, I don't I don't think we need any more apps um, or any like improved pipes like those things are great. But what I would like to see is some real investment in business model innovation, you see, and that's where it never gets touched like it's very rare that you would see an organization saying like, you know what guys we have realized that this model of us arriving somewhere and then giving stuff to people doesn't work anymore, regardless of whether that stuff is a food parcel, a tent, or a cash grant. Like giving stuff to people as a business model is obsolete. So we're gonna use like our innovation powers to transform our business model to totally reinvent what we think aid should be. I, I don't see a lot of that happening. I see a lot of the give directly um, saying that they're so modern because they're giving money directly to people, but uh, they still operate as a pipeline. I don't see anyone moving away from the business model. So if COVID, if COVID is going to give us the opportunity to innovate on the business model, I think there's still some hope for like the fundamental sort of reason why you and I started to work in the sector, which was to like actually try and do something um, for people that were less lucky in the place um, in which they were born. If COVID does not create space for us to do that, to innovate on like the fundamentals of the sector and challenge like the deeply seated sort of assumptions, 
then we'll end up with a lot of like cool apps, but I don't think that's going to lead to a lot of change, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I fully agree and also agree that, you know, I've worked in the innovation space for a while and it's amazing how many of those quote unquote innovations you still see and how much they still actually get supported by things, you know, like humanitarian innovation bodies or, you know, donors or whatever it, it may be. But I guess, you know, given what you've just said about something like, you know, the idea that you might give something directly and that that would be revolutionary. Um, and the fact that, you know, a lot of these humanitarian reforms that do have a lot of innovation potential, I mean, you know, cash is, is still one really at a, at a kind of systemic level that's that is, I think, a game-changing thing, but is not being used in the way that it's living up to its full potential because it does enable a degree of letting go that I think a lot of agencies aren't quite ready for. Um, and how do you see that then working with the way that innovation or systems change is perceived in our humanitarian sector now? Because arguably you have the kind of you have snippets of change that are then essentially controlled in the same way that aid is controlled right by big UN agencies so say you have innovation being perpetuated within an organization like WFP or well vision or UNICEF or you know not to not to name call they're just examples but do you think that those agencies changing and focusing on innovation is going to make some of these changes that we want to see or should they actually sort of take this opportunity to say this isn't for us and maybe step down somewhat that is such a hard question to answer and i can only answer it like at a at a personal level well i've been answering everything at a personal level but for me the the word sort of innovation is not something i use on my day-to-day -day work um, I don't think I own enough Patagonia outfits to like claim the term. So I, I try to make people understand it's just basically a way of looking at all problems in a, from a different perspective. Now, if we, if we focus on, on, on problems, right, then the whole perspective of what innovation should be in the sector should be shifting. So so if we stop this obsession with like finding better solutions for people and we, we start to invest more in trying to understand like what are the big, big problems that need to be solved so that we understand the problem really, really well, I think that in itself would bring about change. Um, but I don't think innovation is going, to, is going to fix the sector at all. I think what innovation can do is inject the sector with the ideas that it needs to fix itself. So imagine if innovation was used um, to make humanitarians understand that decisions that they made need to be taken through the filter of um, a long-term vision, right? Um, so this perspective of um, being a good ancestor. So imagine if innovation was the part of the sector that said all right leadership and people who are working in programs directly with people every decision you make make it as if you were being held responsible um, as an ancestor to like the rest of your family would people still be making the same decisions or would they be willing to take on more like long-term choices um, i'm i'm hoping that that's what innovation can do now 
um, big agencies like big corporations are always trying to chase profit. So innovation is a way of keeping your business relevant to make sure that you have a good return on investment. So I don't want to come across as naive. Like I can see that we're like at the front end of the, of the profit making. It's just that there needs to be some ethics in the way in which we engage with how we chase profit. And innovation is ripe for that conversation to happen. Yeah, it's a really, it's really tough, I suppose, because you can see that, you know, a lot of these efforts are very well-meaning, but then you do see some of them sort of creep into territory where it just seems like there's a hot new thing and big agencies want to chase that because that's where the money is going to come from, which I guess is, as you say, how markets kind of work, but it's, it's sort of a sinister market in a way. Um, maybe just to take us up a notch again to a sort of broader question, I'm really interested to hear, and you've touched on a lot of them already, I, I would say, but in your opinion, is there a humanitarian elephant in the room at the moment and, and what is it? <laughs> I would say we have like a whole circus perhaps. <laughs> um, but if I had to choose like the biggest elephant, I would say um, that the people we serve have zero power over what they get. I think that is the biggest one. And, and it's, it's also the saddest one because it's the one that people use all the time when they want to talk about the future and, and things that need to change. So it's being trampled on so much that even using it makes my stomach turn, right? Mm. These people at the center of business, it's been used so much, but, but I, I think that's the ultimate, the ultimate like hush hush in the sector that people cannot actually decide whether they want to get a cash grant from me or you. They cannot do that. And until they can do that, which I think slowly and slowly is going to like start to become a reality, it's going to be really hard for us to give up some of like the bad sort of habits we have that keep, keep us like in, in a comfy sort of comfortable place. I think that's probably an elephant. Now, if I was talking about a giraffe, I would say the giraffe in the room is the fact that um, our, our leadership is perhaps not as inspiring as it should be, right? So I, I would like to see a lot more voices talking about diversity and inclusion in the sector. I'd like to see more voices talking about um, why it's important to invest in young people um, in the places that we work. I'd like to see more voices saying that they're actually a little bit tired with this like north, north sort of conversations that we have about the future. And it's not to say that we don't have great people working like in our institutions right now. It's just that I'm guessing that also at that level, the, the space that they have to operate differently is pretty limited. So I guess, um, yeah, I'm, I'm calling for courage in leadership. I think that would be really inspiring for someone like me. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I can only unfortunately agree with the, the elephant and the, and the giraffe. Um, I mean, on the elephant front, we, 
obviously as ground truth, we consistently year after year, you know, just through very basic processes to ask people what they think, um, you know, it's confirmed year after year that all of this rhetoric around people at the centre is just not working. It doesn't mean anything for people who are the recipients of aid as we know it now. Um, and I guess that, you know, that coupled with maybe a leadership that I would agree is globally, it's not always that inspiring. Um, and it doesn't give you a lot of scope for hope because you sort of see evidence constantly that there's a lot of waffle and that it's not necessarily leading where it should be. Um, but I guess because of that, I wondered whether there was anything that you were excited about this year or, you know, what does give you hope for how we might be able to turn things around? Yeah, conversations like this give me a lot of hope. Um, to, to be able to like have um, a, a very honest conversation about what are the things that we're doing and why are we doing them? I think that's the beginning of, of change for sure. Um, I don't want to be involved in any more conversations that talk about platitudes or, or that ignore like the true facts because we're paying lip service. I, I don't want to do that in 2021. I'm, I'm a bit tired of that. Um, but another thing that really inspires me, like in my current job with NRC, is like all of the talent that is out there. Like I have conversations with brilliant people every day and and these are people that are committed to doing things differently and are people that understand the places they work in because most of the times they are from that place or they come from a place nearby and and for me that means a lot because i um i i play i play this game sometimes but i grew up in mexico as as in like it's different to be talking about um the, the, the plight of humanity and like how terrible things are in other places. Um, when, when it's actually like the people you went to school with or like your parents. So I think um, being able to like understand that there's a lot of commitment out there and a lot of knowledge and expertise actually fills me with a lot of hope. Um, and I use every day I have in my job to protect these people so that they can do the best that they can, so that they can try different ways of operating, um, but also to like amplify their voices so that one day those people would be like the, the leaders that we need. And I think there's space to do that in 2021. I don't think there would be space to do that maybe in 2018, but there's space to do that now. So I'm, I'm taking every opportunity I can to do that. And, and that fills me with with hope in an otherwise very boring COVID existence. Yeah, it's great to, to hear that. And do you also feel that maybe there will be a tipping point at which a lot of the voices that are to an extent silent in the sector now will kind of force their way in? Because I feel a bit like that's something quite exciting about the way that the world is going generally is that, you know, because of whether it's TikTok, as you mentioned before, or a lot of different structural processes in global politics and pop culture and media consumption, um, that people just sort of find their way into these conversations now and movements happen and Black Lives Matter was definitely a great example of that. Do you see a, a humanitarian version of that? 
<laughs> it would be cool, no? Um, I, I guess it could, it could totally happen, but I don't know. I think these people that would have these opinions, they're usually working. I think like they're not recording podcasts like uh, you and me, Meg. They're actually like trying to figure out how to engage with the municipalities and like working with the community. So I think mm. we need to find a way of actually creating meaningful space for these people to contribute from like meeting them where they are. So this, this thing of like, oh yes, like give up your seat in a conference and all of that. Yes, I think that is, that is great, but like meet people where they are so that the, their, like their voice can actually be heard. And I don't know, like if you're listening to this podcast and you have something interesting to say, go out, write it, <laughs> people will retweet it. Um, I think that's basically the best way to go. Don't wait for people to make space for you. Make your own space. Uh, a brilliant thought to almost end on. Um, now that we've covered giraffes and circuses and TikTok and ancestors and a lot of things that maybe you wouldn't normally hear on a humanitarian podcast, is there anything else that you wanted to leave us with? Um, any final wisdom that you might have? I don't think I have any final wisdom. I think um, what I'd like to say is um, look look at other processes that have worked, right? There is there is hope in terms of like how we can do things better. Um, I refuse to believe that everything's dark you know, and, and dingy, but I think there's also quite a lot of, of work to be done. Um, so this like congratulatory sort of... Um, festivals that we tend to have in the humanitarian sector celebrating our achievements are great, but I would also almost like us to be holding um, more, more failure festivals mm. um, so that we can like optimize from the things that we've tried to change and then didn't work out. Um, but I don't know if that's, if that's wisdom or more like, like a desperate cry for help because I truly believe that we should be doing better and we have all the resources to do better it's just that we have to break free from what we think and feel is comfortable so yeah that was definitely wisdom and I I think it's all down I mean to me it's an accountability issue I think true accountability doesn't exist in our sector and we're very uncomfortable with that because we're a sector of well-intentioned people who are trying to do good in the world. And I think there is a real lack within that of any, you know, real stringent reflection of is this working or not? Um, so I fully agree on the, on the fail fests and maybe I'll see you at one of those soon. Um, but I will let you get back to work, but thank you so much for all of this. And I think it's been a very interesting chat. It was great to finally get the time to do it and to sit down and have a virtual cup of tea with you. Um, and yeah, thanks again so much. Thank you. It's been lovely to have this chat with you. It's about the rights and the freedom to be for people to choose their path in life and dream. Souls of men beyond what you see. Stages are different for each. I think it was fine. I don't know how long it was meant to be. Lars Peter is going to have to edit. No, you were great. You were like the best guest you've ever had. I don't think so. He's had very like solid white males. Maybe we could have, we could have like a monthly chat, like a. We should do like a reverse podcast. So we take the same questions, yeah. but now I ask you the questions. 
That's yeah. where we should be pitching. We're not going to do that now, but <laughs> we, can, <laughs> we can do that next. It's about the rights and the freedom to be, for people to choose their path in life and dream. Souls of men beyond what you see. Stages are different for each who will lead. Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks, fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets. Ask better questions, pick apart, educate, and no one is safe. We're here to build and debate. We are, we are searching for more. Open up your mind beyond rich or poor. For the truth, you've been warned. Humanitarian. <laughs>